We've basically had this in mind and the writing on the wall from the get-go of going, look, we can see the numbers. We, you know, these businesses work on a cash-in, cash-out basis. Anyone in the industry knows that. Like a couple of months of not being able to do that is just absolutely kind of fatal for most of us. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. During the series, many operators have shared their concerns about the future of the industry. Although the impact of the pandemic has been swift and brutal, most have suggested that true damage will be revealed as we move forward. With some restaurants opening as restrictions ease, others, sadly, are closing their doors for good. Chloe Proud is one of Australia's most talented entrepreneurs. She's also the owner of Hobart's Oddfellows Bar and Eatery. Chloe, how are you going? Hello, hello. Anthony Huckstep. As good and normal as one can possibly be in these trying times. Well, there's lots to talk about because we did uh, touch base just recently to see what's going on in your world. But can we start by telling us about this restaurant that you created and what it was like before the pandemic? And then we can get into sort of what's happened since. Um, Anthony, we've had such an interesting timeline with this venue in that it was very much in its infancy. Um, but probably one of the first businesses that I've ever owned that I could have wholeheartedly said that through lots of trial and error and clever business making decisions, we actually had the platform for something that might have actually made some bloody money for once within this industry, which we all know is a rarity. Um, And our numbers were showing that. So we'd stepped into a space that we had very little uh, expenditure to get ourselves up and running and operating. We had devised a business very mindfully centred on offering things to Tasmanians in the first instance and not trying to harness anything, you know, on this kind of fledgling tourism industry that everybody else has kind of invested in hugely and now the arse of that has dropped out very quickly and terrifyingly. Um, But, you know, we're both numbers people. We've learnt lessons and we were operating a business very much on that basis of making what we thought was a clever investment so that's where we were kind of trying to fill a gap in the market and thriving quite well based on that. And so as the pandemic sort of arrived and there was that kind of fateful week that, that was that changed everything, um, can you tell us what it was like that week and what the impact was on your business? Oh, I mean, I still, the only, the reassurance that I get at the moment is that we all, I think, probably psychologically went through this phenomenon of sharing the same absolute uncertainty, apprehension, no idea what the right decision was to make. It almost felt like a little bit of a joke, you know, practical joke was being played on you, this invisible enemy. But the sense for us within our four walls was just looking at each other quizzically going, you know, this this thing is happening globally. It's there on the news and we're in this funny little bubble here and it just seems so wrong and so irresponsible to be serving people right now like the safety of my staff all of a sudden seems like the most critical thing so we made the decision to close a week earlier than the government mandated closures were put in place down here and on that basis of just going look I think we have this kind of 
ethical responsibility right now to be doing this. No one else is giving us that information, so we need to make the call ourselves. But I think for us particularly between my business partner Niall and I, I mean, we were looking at each other like deer in the headlights and non-necessarily because we were concerned about what was going to be happening financially, but because of this bigger picture and the much longer term ramifications that we could already see, the writing that was on the wall for that. You know, we'd been given a little bit of preemptive notice down here with David Walsh announcing that they weren't going to run Dark Mofo this year, Mona closing its doors. And there was a bit of a conversation within the community here of going off, you know, what are we all going to do? Winter trade's going to suffer so much for not having this festival and influx we're all relying on and we're sitting looking at each other going, we've got much bigger fucking problems if David Walsh has decided to pull the pin. Like this is a huge issue, the economic ramifications of it. So that's where we were sitting was just going, look, even the imminent closures now are not necessarily what we need to worry about. It is what's going to be happening in a year, what's going to be happening in three years now because – you can kind of see the writing on the wall with it. So in a nutshell, the week was horrible, but we're kind of now on that point of going, well, I think that is potentially going to have been the toughest thing mentally any of us dealt with, just having fear and doubts and uncertainties and these kind of imminent threats that you can't see. So at the very least, we've probably all gotten through one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face in all of this in that moment. And so did you have to stand down a lot of staff or, and let them go? And, you know, what, what happened over the last sort of two months in that regard? Did you, did you activate any sort of um, different business models to, re, to uh, create income or did you just keep the doors shut? We were particularly lucky, Anthony, in terms of, I mean, as I mentioned, the business was running well. We kind of didn't have these huge kind of, business loans, debts, overarching things, and we had a very small staffing pool and a very close one. So we just sat down and just, you know, as a team and had that kind of conversation of this is the safest thing to do, what financial position are all of you in, we've got a bit of money saved, we're certainly behind all of you guys to get you through this next period. But at the end of the day, we all just kind of need to probably shut down a little bit for a couple of weeks and see what happens. No one really knows how we're going to pivot to move in all of it. So we spent a month of just being quiet, having a little bit of a rest, just kind of getting the scope and mine and Niall's response was immediately to get onto the phone to everyone in the industry that we knew to see where they were at. And this has been one of the most terrifying things in all of it is that collectively as a group, these kind of great business owners very intelligent people, well-informed people, politically-minded people, and all of them sitting around going, I've got no idea, I've got no idea, we've got no information, we've got, like, no proper resources. We're getting informed exactly the same way that the rest of the general public are on things that are dictating the terms of our businesses right now and being expected to pivot at a moment's notice. So, I mean, for us, it didn't seem like smart business decisions to keep kind of knee-jerk reacting to changes until we knew the scope a little bit better and understood how we should be pivoting. But we then kind of made the decision to step back in in one capacity, just more on the basis of keeping people's morale 
up than anything else because there's this kind of overarching issue of people's mental health in all of this too. So that's kind of been our priority from the get-go. But, yeah, I mean, there's certainly still this huge lack of an ability to do any planning or decision-making and there hasn't been from the get-go. Um, How have you felt about the support that the government has been giving the industry in Tasmania and, you know, I know initially the restaurant wasn't created for with tourists in mind but obviously the borders were shut and there was an impact like that. Um, what's this period been like in regards to the decisions being made that are out of your control? It's frustrating on the level of how apparent, how quickly we have zero representation in the small business sector, independent restaurant owners, etc. I think part of that is, you know, on one level, we don't represent ourselves. So we can't kind of stand back beating our fists on our chest and going, hang on a minute, why aren't we being consulted? But there's a part of me that thinks, well, why the fuck should we? We're all small business owners. We're within our four walls working our butts off to get over the line, do the thing that we love, maintain the lifestyles that we have, create the culture that we all care about. And there's been no stepping forward down in this state that you can see. There's, I mean, this week's been the perfect example of it. The Premier decided to lift restrictions from 10 people in venues to 40 with three days' notice. Like if that isn't a more direct indication of the lack of understanding and the lack of respect that's there, around the parameters that we all work within, I don't know what else is. But the inability for us to kind of have any properly directed and effective financial support as a consequence of this lack of a dialogue from one end to the other has just been right from the get-go, you know. Like, I mean, I've listened to the rest of the podcast and it's fairly kind of big consensus that, yes, we all need JobKeeper and things like this to survive, but they're just kind of stemming a wound that, there's no kind of overarching fix to this. It doesn't give any of us an opportunity to kind of enterprise, incentivize. But, yes, I mean, for me down here as well, there is a consensus of the need for us to kind of have a unilateral voice so we can step into these conversations with government. But the minute that any of us have tried to step towards doing that, you kind of realise how impermeable the red tape is and it's designed to be. And with zero resources, I mean, who is it that's in the situation that we've all been thrown in that's got the energy, the will, the finances, the goal to kind of keep knocking on that door to get heard? So where it comes from, you know, comes from, I don't know. I mean, we've got a particularly unique opportunity, I think, in Tasmania to kind of band together as a community now and start being quite noisy about it and go, look, you know, like we're, we're going to refuse for you to keep making statements inadvertently that this is an acceptable loss for you because it's not fucking acceptable. Like we're the key holders to a culture that's being kind of prostituted to the rest of the world on a tourism level, but we're not having anyone pick us up off our knees at the moment and we're big employers. So in the longer term, if we're not empowered at the moment to come up with good solutions, good initiatives, good ways of redirecting skills, then, you know, that's a pretty grim, bleak future. So 
I would like to see again. I mean, this isn't me necessarily picking fights or picking flaws. I mean, so many of them have arisen in the last couple of months for everyone across the board. I mean, flaws in the way that the industry works itself, the razor-thin margins that we all run off, etc. But now's this moment that, I mean, my personal cause is going to be that, kind of screaming a little bit at them to get some representation on our end so we do get to be included in this conversation you know, ultimately the decision-making that's going to be made about all of our futures. And you have tabled some uh, meetings with the premiers and ministers, I believe, in the, for the sort of next week or so. Um, are, you, have you, are you sort of ready and prepared with what you want to talk to them about or is, is that something as a group you're still pulling together? We're workshopping a few things at the moment. I mean, the important thing to me, I think, is getting enough you know, in a short amount of time to start being able to speak the language that they understand. I mean, again, like I don't want to walk into the office of someone and just be kind of kicking and screaming and going, this isn't fair. Like business is business, politics are politics, and we're not going to be understood or heard if this isn't being reported on the way that a Liberal government understands it. And a lot of this I think is going to be centred around coming up with initiatives that are you know, proper data is being put forward to them, that it actually annexes itself to policy that's already existing, that numbers are connected to it, that you're putting in, you know, an economised report. So it's understood that our sector might not necessarily have ever been the biggest money spinner, but like I said, it is a big employer. I can hugely echo Duncan's kind of sentiments speaking to you about the fact that we now, I think, are in competition with home cooks and supermarkets. So putting all of these players into a much more essential food service to me seems like one of the greatest initiatives that the government could get behind, like procurement capacity in those sorts of areas are huge, but you have all of these kind of brilliant minds, entrepreneurs, people with these amazing skill sets to feed people, do it cost-effectively, you know, come up with these products to me would just be a kind of an amazing investment. But so that is what we're kind of essentially planning on presenting in these meetings is the ideas are there. We're not being wishy-washy about it. These are business people and economists that are looking at this for you, but we can only kind of do so much work at the moment before we really need some resources to be handed back over to the industry to allow us to do it. And one of those things in my mind is in the first instance getting some funding to form these sorts of groups and just allow people to sit together and form some ideas. Like we're all so aware of the problem and we're all so aware of the long-term ramifications of it and I think people, I mean, I don't know what it's like nationally at the moment, but here I think the permanence of this is starting to really kind of hit people properly and be realised. So instead of everyone having to maintain themselves down this path at the moment of just kind of like panicking within their four walls and trying to figure out how the fuck to get themselves above, you know, 15% of what they're used to trading at, give people that opportunity to just steer themselves a little bit and think about it in a much more overarching longer-term capacity and we need support to do it. Now, you know, these circumstances have sort of pushed you into a position to really stand up on behalf of the industry, but um, 
you know, as you said earlier, you after being involved in many amazing uh, establishments down there, you've sort of finally found one that you felt like you could really make money with. But these circumstances that we're in now, you've um, decided that the doors are going to have to close on the business. Can you run through sort of that decision and, and why that's happening? We've basically had this in mind and the writing on the wall from the get-go of going, look, we can see the numbers. We, You know, these businesses work on a cash-in, cash-out basis. Anyone in the industry knows that. Like a couple of months of not being able to do that is just absolutely kind of fatal for most of us. We have been operating back in a capacity and they've been incredibly successful. We did a series of different guest chefs, people from around Hobart doing takeaway offerings here, managing and controlling the crowds really well, still managing to get 100 to 200 people through the doors on a night, which is kind of amazing for Tasmania anyway. So there was a sentiment in our mind of going, look, you might be able to persevere with this, just leveraging off community, taking advantage of the community that we have. And we were offered to walk on the lease instead without penalty. And frankly, you know, I mean, I can throw the words of community sentiment this and support local that around the place, but the fact of the matter is the country is in a recession. I, the unpredictability of people's spending behaviour at the moment is so rife and apparent. You know, I mean, we've even been able to see it in the last few weeks kind of from a mental health perspective of going, this is madness to me to be walking into a venue and kind of keeping up these appearances and selling these luxury products to people when come September if JobKeeper falls out, like what percentage of people all of a sudden don't have a disposable income anymore you know, the inequity in wealth is going to suddenly become so apparent and rife and do we actually even have the fortitude or the capacity to maintain this kind of singing, dancing monkey thing in our venue when most of our friends have lost their fucking jobs and can barely pay rent? Like it's, you know, this odd cultural thing that we're being thrown into. So, I mean, you know, the decision that we made was on many levels on the basis of the writing's on the wall with the numbers and you can see it. And look, I mean, Webb, Niall and I have been positioned in the state and what I kind of believe is a bit of an obligation of ours to speak on behalf of the industry and try and get ourselves into this political sphere. It does kind of require some pretty big resilience and kind of fortitude here and I'm not necessarily sure we'd be able to maintain that if we're dragging ourselves through a Tasmanian winter you know, trying to kind of pretend that operating at 15% of our usual take is a nice thing to be doing. So a difficult decision. It's the first time in years that I won't have a concrete, beautiful venue to kind of call my own and have my anchor there and community around it. But at the same token, I feel a little bit like we've potentially kind of released ourselves from a shackle that's only going to get heavier and heavier over the next six months and, you know, we will. I think we're going to likely see if JobKeeper goes in September, there's going to be a huge drop out of people and that kind of stranglehold and pressure is going to get felt even more. And, I mean, I for one would personally like to have some energy in my wits about me and have been putting a little bit more pressure on this bureaucratic sector at that point to go, what are you doing? What are you actually doing to help us? Because this is only going to get worse before it gets better. 
What's the personal toll been on you through these times, given that you, you know, I know, I know how much you love restaurants and we've talked about it on many occasions and how passionate you are about the industry, but you've, you know, almost been forced to let go of your business. You know, how, how have you felt? It's funny. The, I think it's only just hit me in the last couple of weeks. So when this first happened and we first closed, I kind of went into this little fight mode, you know, like I'm a fighter and I'm really resilient and got on the phone to everyone that I knew and started registering a non-for-profit organisation with everyone and setting up a board, putting memorandums on it, blah, blah, blah. You know, the rest of the people that work with they are sitting back just going, oh, for fuck's sake, here she goes again, like off on another tangent, <laughs> we're all exhausted and in shock. But it was that to me this kind of last few weeks it suddenly really hit in terms of exactly this, this permanence of the cultural change that's about to happen. Like all these people, the things that I've worked on for a decade and all these amazing people that I revere in the industry and you know, I don't ever want to be that catastrophic about the messaging around all of this. But at the end of the day, this kind of dining culture that we all know and love that I've been immersed in for most of my adult life that I've kind of relied upon to facilitate a lifestyle that I love living that's just a true privilege and there's so much kind of beautiful culture and knowledge around that 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 might actually just be gone for the foreseeable future. And... You know, it's shock. It's shock and it's grief, but it also kind of does change your perspective a little bit in terms of, and again, I mean, it's a conversation that's only really arisen in the last few years in terms of the mental health of people in the industry and the lack of understanding of how much we put on the line in terms of having to kind of play these characters within our venues and spin the stories that people want to hear it's all this kind of marketing exercise now when you know we're all having to kind of dance these dances even though we're working 80 hour weeks and we're fucking exhausted and you know you can see money going out and not coming in whatever else so whatever has happened to me and shifted my brain a little bit within the last month or so is going well we all do need to do this this has become a global conversation like we need to cut the shit and actually start discussing pretty openly what was untenable in the industry there was something inherently flawed in this vehicle that we were driving but what is it and pick it apart properly and readdress it properly and force the political changes around it so as much as I do have this grief for this kind of creative beautiful thing and these experiences that we've all kind of had and shared and that you remember and even kind of laugh about the fact that I'm like, oh, am I going to tell my kids one day that there used to be a time that we could justify spending $2,000 in a day just on eating food in a different city in the world? (laughs) Like that even now, you know, you kind of even now go, oh, my God, like what kind of disgusting hedonism have we all kind of invoked (laughs) when we're potentially looking down the barrel of a fucking depression? Like Christ almighty. But there is... An exciting potential moment. I mean, this is something that I've been working on for most of my life. I kind of look back and I was like, oh, it's what I wrote my honours paper on fucking 12 years ago is this idea of kind of micro-scale economics pertaining to food and the fact that, you know, I mean, I happen to live in a state that is particularly capable of ushering something like that in and 
you know, the fragility of these systems that's just been exposed overnight. I mean, I don't think anyone could have anticipated how quickly we've just had it exposed to us of going, these economic systems, like literally this game of fucking Pac-Man that we're all playing is so fragile and so volatile, but whether our government's got the capability of actually getting their shit together and dealing with this or not, but going, you know, we actually seriously require so much more security around these really basic things in life, like stop selling all of our good produce out of the state and keep it within here, you know, give people and skill sets an opportunity to actually feed the people within the state, address welfare properly in that regard, empower the local producers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's myriad issues with these things and there's potentially this little crack that's been forged that it can be addressed properly, but whether or not that happens is a terrifying thing. But, I mean, I can't help but take the break, realise the grief, but pivot pretty quickly into that sort of thinking and going, well, let's all look at this broader future and try and actually get some people to start being pretty vocal about it because we need to be and we need to all kind of learn to be a little bit more political and speak that language because we don't and we should. You've also been involved in a couple of uh, welfare-based initiatives recently. Can you tell us um, what they are? So we've had to, and look, they've come with their challenges hugely in terms of, and I think a lot of people had that reaction in the first instance of going, oh, there's been a big unemployment dropout. What about all the temporary visa holders that don't get government support, this and this and this, and trying to kind of figure out the avenues in which you can help or just do something as simple as feeding people. Um, So we'd kind of gone down a tangent of trying to figure out a way of kind of putting chefs into large-scale kitchens, trying to find pockets of produce that we know aren't being sold into places and just essentially creating food banks for people, um, whether they go into kind of existing channels and charities or whether you create one for yourself. Um, The bones of that are already there. I mean, the issue now that we've got, and it's one of the things that I'm going to be discussing with the Premier, is finding proper data on this and actually kind of minimising the red tape a little bit so it isn't just kind of subject to the already existing organisations to be doing this, you know, kind of allow the industry itself as well to target the people that have had fallout within the industry in order to do it. Um, The second component of this has been, so we've essentially been running evenings and events and raising money and trying to kind of get a pool together for this with the overarching and longer-term intention of setting up an online supermarket of sorts but giving micro grants into unemployed chefs or venues that need new outlets for product to go into, Um, just give them the kind of mentorship and a little bit of money to get set up to do that with the kind of knowledge that the proceeds of it will be going back into that sort of pool as far as making food and simple things and spaces available to people that are kind of going pretty seriously without. Um, But, you know, again, it's kind of a matter of saying like, yes, we're involved and we're kind of, you know, putting this groundwork in for things and you just kind of come up against red tape constantly and there's a huge kind of lack of an ability to kind of just walk through a channel like that and simply do something 
with charity in mind without there being lots of players and contention and people competing for grants and this and this and this. So it's certainly been an interesting and educating process, but I think where we kind of stand at the moment is that we're going down the channel now of, and we've had some really amazing, incredibly generous donations recently that's kind of fired us up a little bit in terms of that going well let's use this opportunity to enterprise with that in mind that we can just kind of be entrepreneurial and go well fuck it we're going to just open spaces up we're going to try and feed people we're going to still give that a little bit of a crack because we know that they need it now this has been a pretty difficult time i know but um you've also just um started a lot of initiatives and become really proactive on behalf of people in the in the industry and it's changing lots of people like yourself you know what has what have been the positives to come out of this period for you even though that you're closing your business i think it's that it's the candor with which people are starting to talk to each other which i really appreciate in terms of you know, people that I've really respected and revered for a long time in the industry and, like, they've been made really vulnerable and their egos have been shed hugely. So the different tack and the conversations there and just that kind of on its absolute basic level, the fact that we're just all checking in with each other and making sure that we're okay, that's kind of a hugely reinforcing thing, I think, for... Me personally, I'm sure that this podcast is a great indication of that, that my fucking flea brain is kind of constantly looking for new projects and things to do and whatever else and being forced into a space of, well, and we're about to have that kind of gift of, you know, just a bit of a stepping back away from this day-to-day rigmarole of being in the venue, having that little buffer, having something to kind of distract you and get through that time and go, well, let's utilise it to just kind of filter these things, figure out what's important, who is it that you actually really care about supporting and looking after, what facets of this industry is it that you are truly passionate about, what are you trying to protect and preserve, you know, just to give everyone, I guess, that little bit of clarity. And that's been a pretty, you know, universal conversation from what I've seen as people are kind of really thankful that they've been given this time of just disconnect from their busyness to consider that a little bit more. So, I mean, irrespective of the stresses of all of this, I kind of personally feel like I'm looking at the world with a much kind of clearer view than I was six months ago, just kind of battling every day with fatigue and adrenaline. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. There's kind of a little bit of breathing space that's happening that at least makes us all, I think, kind of step back and go, okay, We've had the break. How do we reapproach this? What's the pivot that I actually want to be making? How did you get into the industry in the first place? <laughs> um, mine was a very classic working in the bar job to get me through university. Um, and I still think quite odd now that at the age of God, 1920, I did a degree that I essentially might end up utilising more now than I ever realised. So I'd studied political science and environmental science, gotten to the end of my degree and was working at 
what was probably one of the more notable restaurants in the city at the time with just such an amazing boss. Um, and loved the work. I think I was very good at it, but I decided and I'd applied and been accepted to start my medical degree. And my boss, Chief, pulled me aside at the time and just said, look, you've kind of got your whole life to do that and to prove to the rest of the world that you're smart enough to be a doctor. <laughs> it was like, you know, he's like, I won't say this to a lot of people. It was like, you know, you're good at your job and if you actually kind of pursue this industry, there's a huge amount of education that you can kind of acquire for yourself if you access it. So, you know, he was kind of inadvertently imploring me, just being like, sink your teeth into it for the things that you're passionate about. Like, you know, it's a bit of an oyster for you down here if you pursue it. Um, and at that particular juncture was kind of asked to be involved in the Ethos project, which was at that moment a decrepit 1820s built stable and carriage yard that no one had walked into for 175 years and a lot of that job, the components of the job were environmentally minded and kind of latched onto a lot of my tertiary education. So that was the path and I decided to walk down it. Well, was, well, this is the first time I met you actually was at Ethos and it was um, a bloody great restaurant. And, um, <laughs> you know, how are you going to feel uh, when you do close the doors and, and what are you going to miss about, you know, running a restaurant and having your own bricks and mortar? Oh, I mean, it's just, it's kind of the answer to it's exactly the same as saying what would you miss about not being in your home? You know, for me there's kind of, it always has been, it's this kind of expression for us. It's a creative space. It's kind of your personality gets channeled through it. I mean, I'm kind of a big design person and the spaces have always been really important to me in terms of how you can kind of elaborate an experience because it's not just about the food products that are going on the plate. It's about how you feel within those walls and what's appointed there and whether you make people feel at home or not. And you can do that with such simple cues you know, that to me is what hospitality is about and it's certainly what we've always strived for in our venues is going, well, you know, we kind of want this to be a transcendent thing and I've only ever tried to design businesses that are something that the local community want to go to, you know, that feeling of somewhere that you can visit kind of every day because you feel at home and the person remembers your coffee and all the details there. So, it's those sorts of things that kind of are very tactile and soulful and they keep your hands busy and there's human connection in it. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I think both Noel and I have found so difficult about making the decision to leave and it's certainly what's been difficult about the businesses that I've had in the past that we've closed or have changed hands for whatever reasons is, you know, they're soulful businesses for all of us. The entire industry will share that sentiment. It's why we do it because you kind of – feed off the energy that comes in the door it's your little anchor it's kind of why we all go to our local pubs or whatever else and return visitation it gives us some kind of routine some kind of normalcy some tangible thing to hold on so there's a little bit of that was our apprehension at all is you know who who are we how are we defined and what the fuck do we do on a day-to-day -day basis if we don't have this space in this thing 
Mm. So it will definitely be an interesting challenge for me because it's been the first time probably in over a decade that I haven't had a space like that to call my own, a commercial space. What's the opportunities moving forward for the industry? I know you've got a lot of meetings coming up and there's still planning involved, but you know what, what's your sense of the opportunities? It's very hard to predict. I think in Tasmania we're going to be putting a huge amount of emphasis on what the Tasmanian experience actually looks like moving forward. And, I mean, I hope a big investment gets made into harnessing this kind of authenticity and multifaceted history down here that I don't think we've ever really kind of tapped into quite yet in terms of let's not just keep kind of selling and spruiking this wilderness and, you know, duck-boarded overland track this and whatever else. Like really consider and really start curating high-quality visitation here under the assumption that our new market from a tourism perspective is Tasmanians in the first instance and then secondly interstate travellers. We don't kind of want high volume, quick in and out anymore. We want people kind of being here, staying here, immersing themselves, investing money within those kind of pockets. So there's a part of me that thinks that there is still potentially going to be a relevance for incredibly high quality, well thought out spaces. So businesses kind of like FICO and Agrarian Kitchen that have got the ability to kind of just shift a little and control their costings make the experience something a little bit more amenable to what they know they can do within their businesses constraints and the numbers they require but you know there will ultimately now and this is what I think I've seen from the get-go of going well our pool of customers is Tasmanians now like that's what we need to address in the first instance and how many of them have fine dining eaters they're not that's not what our customer pool is so we're kind of essentially now in essence going to be in competition with supermarkets. So putting that expertise in people and it's actually in the reality of things quite an exciting opportunity if you look at it like that, like a proper investment into food manufacturing and production within the state, putting brilliant chefs to work on devising those sorts of products, putting brilliant graphic designers and events people and whatever else into kind of enforcing the idea of a brand Tasmania, what that actually looks like, how we kind of sell that. I mean, I keep using the example. I know New Zealand had a similar piece of legislation that was pushed about 15 to 20 years ago, which was when all of the rest of the world suddenly knew what Manuka honey was and Merino wool. Um, I mean, that's where my sense of where this market that's going to open up is, is that we need to start competing on a much bigger, much more accessible, much more affordable scale um, and that we need to have a conversation about tourism and experience that is a very overarching one that runs from government tourism bodies all the way through to events, arts, restaurateurs and producers because that is essentially cohesively what we're going to be selling to people and, you know, we can execute that in an amazing way but it has to be done as a collective group and not kind of hodgepodge anymore, get some pretty amazing upskilling happening within the industry as well so the message is very clear. Well, Chloe, um, you've got a 
pretty big week coming up and um, <laughs> your, um, your energy is bloody inspiring. I uh, look forward to catching up with you for a drink again sometime in the future. But um, look, thanks for having a chat today. Thanks for having me. Please keep in touch. I will, definitely. You're a bloody legend. We'll talk soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.